Well, good morning, everybody. I want to welcome those of you also joining us online this morning from 14 different states right now in this moment. The, uh, the, the vast majority of those are joining us from Michigan, of course. And the second state, as always, is Florida. There's, there's, a, there's a long historic relationship between Florida and, and Michigan. And, uh, of course, many Michigan people have Florida in their heart. And many Florida people have Michigan in their history. Uh, so wherever you're joining us today, welcome. Glad you could join us online as well. We're, we're just four weeks away from Easter Sunday, the pinnacle of the Christian calendar. The resurrection of Jesus is the centerpiece of the Christian faith. And I know in, in our day, Christmas is the most celebrated holiday. But for many centuries, Easter was the big deal. And Christmas was merely an afterthought. Now, I don't know if back then, I don't think people ever wore like ugly Easter sweaters or came up with Easter carols or things like that, but we do know that people uh, anticipated, looked forward to, and prepared for Easter. And we are preparing for Easter as a congregation by focusing on the identity of Jesus, on the person of Jesus. And for the purpose of this sermon series, we are not uh, looking at things people said about Jesus, but on things that Jesus said about himself, his own self-understanding. And uh, sometimes we call these statements in John's gospel the I am statements, because seven times in John's gospel, Jesus said, I am, and then he gives this real unforgettable picture. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the vine. I am the resurrection. And each week we're lifting up one of these phrases from John's gospel. Each statement reveals something unique about Jesus, and no statement is complete all on its own. No, no one metaphor or image does justice to God or to describe God incarnate. Jesus. And so it's helpful to have a variety of metaphors, and they exist in the Bible. Well, we know that God is a judge, yes, but God is also a father. God is a king, that's helpful, but God is also a shepherd. And so each image reveals a facet of who he is. And today we get to that place in the Bible where Jesus said, I am the door. And the image is a door or a gate in a sheep's pen. Now, next week, we're going to look at I am the good shepherd, and good shepherd and sheep's pen are uh, overlapping and interlocking and interrelated. In fact, it's the same passage in the Bible where Jesus said both of these things, but they each say something unique about Jesus, too. So while they're interconnected, we're going to take them one at a time. Today, I am the door, and next week, I am the shepherd, the good shepherd. And reading our scripture passage this morning is Adeline Schunk. Adeline, would you come forward? Adeline is a fifth grader at Emmerman Elementary School in Northville. And uh, would you please stand for the reading of God's word as Adeline reads for us today? John 10, 7 through 10 says, So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
You may be seated. Thank you. Thank you, Adeline. The image is a sheep pen, and the sheep pen has this door or gate, and the purpose of that door is twofold. It's to let sheep in and to keep the robbers and the wolves out. And we're going to look at three aspects of this image today. I want to talk about the power of this image, the exclusivity of this image, and the invitation of this image. And first, the power of this image. The image of a door is powerful and relatable. A small group might ask uh, the question, if you were a door, what kind of door would you be today? Uh, would you be a French door today? You know, and you feel like God's calling you through the wide open double doors into an expanse of something new? Or maybe it's, it's more of a doggy door today? Uh, you've come into the sanctuary humbled and at all fours and just barely making it through that little flappy door. Uh, maybe it's a revolving door is the image for you. You feel like your life's not getting anywhere and going around in circles and you can't actually get into the room where you want to be. Uh, maybe it's a prison door. There's a door, but it is locked and the keys are held by the jailer and you're not going anywhere. Maybe it's a fire escape door. You're fleeing from something in your life that's on fire. Maybe it's some other kind of door, but what, what kind of door would you be? It's a, it's a metaphor. To flip the question around, if there were a, a sign hanging on the door of your life right now, what would that sign read? Would it say, do not disturb? Would it say, enter at your own risk? Uh, out to lunch? Uh, closed? open for business, uh, right? a door is such a relatable metaphor uh, for us all. In literature, there's almost a fascination with magical doors that, that lead to new lands and new worlds. And so Lucy stepping through the wardrobe into the land of Narnia, or Frodo and his fellowship in Lord of the Rings coming to the western door that gives access to the mines of Moriah. And you need a special password to get through that door to a new area. Harry Potter encounters all kinds of magical doors, the door to the Chamber of Secrets, the door the, to the Vanishing Cabinet, or to the Room of Requirements, and their disappearing doors, and walls turning into doors, and fireplace portals. Uh, we, we love in literature, it's a common theme of crossing thresholds into new worlds, leaving behind our mundane lives and stepping into magical lands. Entering that door is a way for us to, to, to break on through to the other side to a life of wonder, adventure, challenge, and purpose. The human spirit seems to long for a, a, a door, an entry, a portal to a new way of being. And Jesus says to a longing world, I am the door. I am the entryway to a new world. I am the gateway to God. I am the entrance to green pastures and to the abundant life. I am the door you've been looking for, the door you intuitively knew must exist, and the door you were giving up hope of ever finding. I am that door. I am the door. I am the entryway to a whole new way of being. It's a powerful, relatable image of crossing from one life into the other, of one past into a future, of one realm to another realm. Uh, 
Now let's talk about the exclusivity of this image because Jesus did not say, I am a door. He said what? I am the door. Uh, he, he didn't say, I'm one of many doors. He said, I'm the door. I am the only door. And the exclusivity bristles in our modern ears. Uh, we love options. In fact, I think we would bristle even if Jesus had said, I am one of five doors. We still would say, oh, only five doors? That, that doesn't seem very fair. That doesn't seem right. Uh, we, we push back against anything that has forced choice questions. We want to believe there's an infinite number of doors and that each person could in fact create their own door. I like that idea as well. But Jesus said, I am the door, the one through which you must walk for life. When Jesus said, I am, he's tapping into something very powerful. Two weeks ago, we talked about this phrase, I am, and how the way Jesus said it and how the way he structured it referred back to the name of God in the Old Testament. Last week, we talked again about the story in Exodus chapter 3 where Moses asked God for God's name. God, what is your name? If people ask me who sent me, who should I say sent me? And again, there's a very important line where God says, I am who I am. Tell the people the I am sent you. God's name is I am. And then here in John's gospel, Jesus works that phrase I am over and over again. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. And he uses the same unique grammatical structure used for the name of God back in the Old Testament. Uh, now, it might be kind of vague to us reading in the English. If we back up two chapters, you can see this more clearly. In John chapter 8, Jesus said to the people gathered, he said, before Abraham was, I am. Kind of a strange structure. He, he didn't say, before Abraham was, I was. He said, before Abraham was, I am. And when he said, I am, all of his listeners jumped back in their minds to Exodus chapter 3 and to the name of God. They heard Jesus saying with clarity that he was God, the God of the Bible. And the reason we know this again is because after Jesus said this line, the people pick up rocks and begin to throw them at Jesus. They decided with clarity that he must be a demon because he just said he was God. He, he must be a, a demon or he must be uh, divine. Um, let's dig in this a little deeper. In the Hebrew Bible, Old Testament written in Hebrew, there were different names for God. And uh, these are transliterations of the Hebrew. Elohim is more of a generic uh, word for God. This is the first one we see in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. Uh, might be translated supreme one or something like that. Then the Hebrew word Adonai often translated Lord. But when Moses asked God for God's name, that's this one, Yahweh, I am. This becomes the name of God. And over time, this one name for God became like the name. It's a little different than the other ones. God said this is his name. And it became so holy, so revered, people were afraid to say the name aloud. 
not just a reverence, but almost a holy fear, like as a mortal, could I even handle speaking this holy name? Uh, when, when the Bible was hand transcribed, the scribes were afraid uh, to write this word. And so when they came to this word, when they were copying, they would often substitute it with Adonai or Elohim or simply the name. Uh, when Angie and I were in college at Wayne State University, she took a class called The Bible as Literature at Wayne State University. I've told you this story before. And the class was taught by an Orthodox Jew, and he explained to the class this term Yahweh, the name of God. In the old Hebrew, there were no vowels, and so all we have is four consonants in the Hebrew language. And he told the class, and this is true, we're not sure exactly how to pronounce it for sure, but he told the class, if you were going to say this name, the first part would be said something like Yah, and the second part would be said something like Way. As a good Jew, he would not put these two together and have the audacity to speak the name of God. Now back to John, uh, where Jesus says, I am, I am. Uh, people, uh, you can see why they were so irate. Uh, Jesus has the audacity not just to say the name of God aloud, but to refer it to himself. And they responded with clarity, this guy is a demon. He just claimed to be God. He's either a demon or he's divine. It's either true or it's false. He's either a blasphemer, in which case he should be stoned, or he's the God of the universe. C.S. Lewis writes about this, about how do people respond to these bold claims of Jesus. Now, this is classic C.S. Lewis. Some of you are familiar with this argument. Uh, he sets up an argument, C.S. Lewis does in his writing. He says, you know, assume that someone said, um, let's say I'm ready to accept Jesus as a good person, as a moral teacher, but I'm not willing to accept that Jesus is God. And then this is how C.S. Lewis responds. You, you might have seen this. C.S. Lewis says, that's the one thing we must never say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great moral teacher. He has not left that option open to us. What do you do with Jesus? His claims are either true or not true. C.S. Lewis says he's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. This is the trilemma that every one of us face with Jesus. Is he a liar, a lunatic, or Lord? Jesus says he's the door to get you off the fence. Jesus says he's the door to get you off the fence. Who is Jesus? Now, notice where his exclusive claim, though, leads. Uh, Jesus, in the passage that was read, said, If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. This go in and go out is a picture of freedom and provision. When you enter this door, 
You are not confined or imprisoned or trapped now in this sheep pen. You are free to roam the fields and to go looking for green pasture. Coming to Jesus through this exclusive door does not lead to confinement. It leads to freedom. Walk through and you will find abundance. You will find fullness of life. Let's talk about the invitation of this image. And it might be helpful to know the difference of life in the village in Bible times versus life in the wilderness. And when you read John's Gospel, you see both of these. In the village, there would be a firmly built sheep's pen with a door and a doorkeeper. And shepherds that would come to the village uh, would leave their sheep with the doorman inside that pen. And the doorman would stand guard and they would pay him a fee and the sheep were secure overnight. But in the wilderness, that wasn't the option. Shepherds had to take their sheep out to find uh, food to eat, grass to consume, and they'd be out in the wilderness. No firm sheep pen in the wilderness. No doorkeeper in the wilderness. They'd have to find a cave or maybe a, a bank of rocks or they would physically make something out of rocks or out of sticks uh, that could work. might look something like this. This is a sheep's pen in the wilderness. Uh, kind of makeshift and simple, but those pokey sticks are enough to discourage a sheep from wandering away. Now, whether a shepherd's using something like this or a cave, there is no physical door in the wilderness. The shepherd becomes the door. The shepherd lays his body in front of the opening and becomes the door. And I don't know, I think for a, a lot of us, perhaps, these last two years have felt more like wilderness, right? These, 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 these two years have been um, a very unsettling uh, time. Uh, maybe it's been a long time since you've sensed the security and safety of the village. The wilderness is where we end up when everything we trust has been stripped away. In the wilderness, you feel more vulnerable maybe than you've ever felt before. Let the shepherd become your door. Let the shepherd become your door. Now, Jesus used the image of, of a door a little differently in Revelation 3.20, where he famously said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person, and they with me. And we often use that verse in Revelation to talk to non-Christians about how they can become a Christian. But if you look at the context of Revelation 3, Jesus is speaking to Christians. He's speaking to a church. He's speaking to the church of Laodicea, and he's saying, Christians, let me in. Let me all the way in. Church people, it's like you've opened the door, but you're still holding me at arm's length. You've opened the door, but you still don't have relationship. And so the invitation is to know the life and freedom and protection of Jesus. But there's a second invitation implied in this image. Not only are we to enter the door ourselves to abundant life, we are invited to help others find this door. We have a shepherding role ourselves. I, I, I can relate well to the shepherd's instinct to stand by doors. In fact, the, the word in the Bible for pastor is the same word as shepherd. I, I sit in the front row of church because I have to. Um, 
I'm like most of you, I would prefer not to sit in the front pew. I love being in our sanctuary. I love worshiping. But if you know me, you know that my preferred place in the entire building is near the door. I like to greet people when they come in. I like to wish them well when they leave. I like to oversee the comings and goings of the flock. As the service begins, I did this morning, I often stand in the back of the room where you can't see me. And I'll pray for you. And I wonder what, what burdens you've carried in with you. I'll, like many pastoral shepherds, I will sometimes count the flock and, and then add 10%. And, uh, and except online, I'll add 30%. Um, I, I almost can't control my instinct to stand by the door. My job requires me to be in the front, but I am most happy at the door. People enter with fears and hopes about what's going to happen that day, and I want to help them cross the threshold. I want to help them enter in. I thought at times when I retire, I should apply for one of those jobs to be a door greeter at Walmart. Uh, because who could have a stronger resume than me? I have got 30 years of door experience. Now, you might not share all the pastoral sensibilities, but at some level, I think we are all called to be people of the door. And I've always resonated with and loved this poem by Sam Shoemaker. Sam Shoemaker... Uh, was very instrumental in the foundations of Alcoholics Anonymous many years ago. And he wrote this poem. It's a little bit longer, but it's always meant a lot to me. Sam Shoemaker writes, uh, I stand by the door. I neither go too far in nor stay too far out. The door is the most important door in the world. It is the door through which men walk when they find God. There's no use my going inside and staying there when so many are still outside and they, as much as I, crave to know where the door is. And all that so, ma so many find is only the wall where the door ought to be. They creep along the wall like blind men with outstretched groping hands, feeling for a door, knowing there must be a door, yet they never find it. So I stand by the door. The most tremendous thing in the world is for men to find that door, the door to God. The most important thing any man can do is to take hold of one of those blind groping hands and put it on the latch, the latch that only clicks and opens to the man's own touch. Men die outside that door as starving beggars die on cold nights in cruel cities in the dead of winter, die for want of what is within their grasp. They live on the other side of it, live because they've not found it. Nothing else matters compared to helping them find it and open it and walk in and find him. So I stand by the door. Go in, great saints. Go all the way in. Go down into the cavernous cellars and way up into the spacious attics. It is a vast roomy house, this house where God is. Go into the deepest of the hidden casements of withdrawal, of silence, of sainthood. Some must inhabit those inner rooms and know the depths and heights of God and call outside to the rest of us how wonderful it is. Sometimes I take a deeper look in, sometimes venture in a little farther, but my place seems closer to the opening, so I stand by the door. There's another reason why I stand by the door. Some people get partway in and become afraid lest God and the zeal of his house devour them. For God is so very great and asks all of us. 
And these people feel like cosmic claustrophobia and they want to get out. Let me out, they cry. And the people way inside terrify them as well. Somebody must be by the door to tell them that they are spoiled for the old life. They have seen too much. One taste of God and nothing but God will do anymore. Somebody must be watching for the frightened who seek to sneak out just when they came inside to tell them how much better it is inside. The people too far in do not see how near those are to leaving, preoccupied with the wonder of it all. Somebody must watch for those who've entered the door but would like to run away. So for them too, I stand at the door. I admire the people who go way in, but I wish they would not forget how it was before they got in. Then they would be able to help the people who've not yet even found the door or the people who want to run away from God. You can go in too deeply and stay too long and forget the people outside the door. As for me, I shall take my old accustomed place near enough to God to hear him and know he is there, but not so far from men as to not hear them and remember that they are there too. Where? Outside the door. Thousands of them, millions of them, but more important to me, one of them, two of them, ten of them, whose hands I am intended to put on the latch. So I stand by the door and wait for those who seek it. I'd rather be a doorkeeper, so I stand by the door. Isn't that great? Let us recommit to helping lost sheep find their way to the door that leads to green pastures and to abundant life. Jesus said, I am that door. Will you pray with me? Well, Jesus, thank you for your love. You suffered so that a door could be opened to me. You are the door to life. You are the guardian of the threshold. Give us the courage to enter the door, to enter the abundant life you offer, to roam the green pastures. Your love and your presence are stronger than our fear. Your hope is greater than our doubt. We pray for those who have yet to find the door and those for whom fear and misunderstanding has left them outside and for the religious among us who open the door but merely look inside. Give us a shepherd's heart for all people. Give us wisdom to show them the door, to guide with care and to welcome with love. This we pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said together, amen. Amen.